I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment this covenant. I will respect the privacy of my patients, for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. Most especially, I must tread with care in the matters of life and death. I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. I will prevent disease whenever I can, for prevention is preferable to cure. I will remember that I remain a member of society, with special obligations to all my fellow human beings, those of sound mind and body, as well as the infirm. If I do not violate this oath, may I enjoy life and art, respected while I live and remembered with affection thereafter. May I always act so as to preserve the finest traditions of my calling, and may I long experience the joy of healing those who seek my help. I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm. Dr. Shipman will see you now. And welcome back to another I Could Murder a podcast episode number two of series four. I'm Tom Norris, and he is here. Mm-hmm. Of course, he is. He is still here. It is Ben Carter. Good to be here, Tom. Thank you so so much for that. How are you doing in the corner, Spooky Man Dan? <laughs> yeah, fine. How are you? That gets better by the minute. It was only a few seconds, but let me ask you how you were. I'm very well, thank you. Very well. And it's uh, it's another big case this week. We really hope you enjoyed the uh, the series opener with Mr. James. <clears throat> With my boy. (laughs) I've got the giggles. Please stop. We hope you enjoyed episode one of the series, uh, James Holmes. We are back today with another very, very big case. Yes, this is a case that has been requested a number of times since we started. A a case that goes by many a name. But Mm. before we get into that, don't forget to follow us on our socials at at Could Murder a Pod uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. 
And as well as our socials, we also have a merch store, which is www.icmap.store. Where we have hats, we have tote bags, we've got badges, we've got sticker packs, we've got lots of new things over there. So be sure to check that out. And also, if you're hungry for more content, we also have a Patreon page, which now has 34... 34 episodes. 34 wow, episodes. a lot of episodes. That's nearly as old as you, isn't 34? Ish. 31. Uh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Little laugh from producer oh. Dan there. No, fair play to you, mate. Little laugh from 32-year-old producer Dan. It's the eyes. But yeah, there's, if you want more episodes, there's 34 <laughs> over there. So if you're hungry for more content, be sure to check us out over there. What do you mean it's the eyes? And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the channel so you get notifications every week when a new episode comes out. Yeah, and speaking of every week, we've got 10 more of these weeks after this week. We do have 10 more after these weeks. And also, audio platforms, don't forget to, to um, subscribe onto them. And if you, you know, they really help us get our name out there in the charts and whatnot. So that any support there isn't very much appreciated. And thank you so much for everyone that's been telling their friends and family about us. Um, we really, really appreciate all the new listeners and viewers. Uh, so we, we hope you enjoy this week's case. Yeah, and be sure to tag us in any stories if you're listening to us. Maybe you're at work, maybe you work in a factory, maybe you work shining shoes. Be, be sure to give us a tag. We always like to see who our listeners are and what they're up to. And we repost everything. So yeah. try your luck. See we really we appreciate the content. So like we said, today's case has been requested numerous times. Um, since we started. He's had a few references in previous episodes as well, I believe. Has he? Two or three, I reckon, yeah. Oh. Mm. Well, that ship hasn't sailed, Ben. And today's case is Harold Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death, a.k.a. The Angel of Death. And my personal favourite, The Good Doctor. So a lot, a lot of names for um, Harold Shipman there. And before we start, in the documentaries and podcasts, often referred to as Fred Shipman. So, Harold Frederick Shipman was born on the 14th of January 1946 in Nottingham, England. Shipman was the middle of three children of Harold Frederick Shipman. Identical. Interesting. Was a long-distance lorry driver and his mother, Vera Britton, was a housemaker, a homemaker. Fuck. A builder. Was his mother a builder? Housemaker. Carry on, Ben. His working-class parents were devout Methodists. He had an older sister, Pauline, who left school at an early age, and a younger brother, Clyde, who is said to not have been as bright as his older brother, Fred. I think it's fairly well, well it's been fairly well reported that Harold was kind of the brightest out of the three children. Mm. Uh, very kind of did well at school. He was very into his sports. Um, he was the shining light of the Shipman family. The lighthouse. He very kind of kept himself to himself, very quiet, but he, he got very involved in sports, and that's apparently when he, he would get, you know, get a bit boisterous. He was very into his rugby, very into his long distance running. So Harold grew up in very much a working class environment. His parents seemed to have much higher hopes for him than, than their other two children and um, straight away held him in very high regard when he began going to school. So he attended the High Pavement Grammar School in Nottingham and he was known, as I mentioned before, Fred or Freddie was, he was known as due to his uh, middle name. But Shipman seem, seemed to have this kind of air that he looked at himself to be a superior to others. He did kind of carry himself slightly different, thinking he was maybe a bit more intelligent than his, his, mm -hmm. his um, classmates. But he kind of, yeah, he, he very much backed himself, which apparently was very much instilled to, into him by his mother. He wasn't too close to his dad. 
but uh, I think that had probably had a lot to do with the fact that he was a long distance lorry driver, so probably wasn't around the house as much. But his mum was kind of very doting and kind of built him up. So, I mean, at junior school, he was very much considered one of the the top children at school, uh, top of his class in most cases. However, when he made that transition into grammar school, which was very, very uh, much an achievement in itself to get into uh, uh, the high pavement grammar school, um, he became a small. It was a big step up, the high pavement grammar school. Fantastic. Thank you, Dan. And that transition from uh, junior school into uh, high pavement grammar school, um, you know, he struggled to keep up keep up academically uh, with with the peers. They became very much a smaller fish in a big pond. Yeah. So yeah, as Tom said, he was very much into his sports. Became quite an accomplished rugby player uh, in youth leagues. Uh, there were also various rugby club dances in local village halls, where instead of um, kind of taking potential dates, um, for, uh, Harold ended up taking his own sister, uh, where they would apparently dance fairly uncoordinatedly, if that's a word. Together, is it a word, Dan? Not an immediate no. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. I've been mean, you're known to make up words sometimes, Ben. They would dance in a fairly uncoordinated manner. Unconventional? That's also good. Yeah, it's not a word. So he struggled to keep up with his peers at uh, high pavement uh, grammar school, so he would really throw himself. It took a lot of effort for him to uh, to study and uh, and and uh, improve his academic uh, prowess. Um, and that took him away from maybe developing uh, socially as much and having a bigger group of friends, but also took him away from spending any time really apart from his sister and his mother with the opposite sex. So he was slower to develop sexually as well. So as we mentioned, Shipman was very close to his mother and sadly she passed away of lung cancer when he was only 17 years old. She, uh, she had a very, very kind of painful illness and toward the end um, she, was having, she had the doctor visit in the home quite a lot, administering pain-killing uh, medication to her and Shipman actually witnessed her passing away, um, which basically was the, the doctor administered some morphine and then soon after, she she took a last breath, and he was there when that happened. Obviously, that's a big that's a big moment in his life. You know, he, he was very close to his mother, and witnessing that was was very hard. A classmate of his actually recalled the Monday after speaking to Shipman, saying, "You know, how was your weekend? What have you been up to?" And Harold kind of said, "My mother died," and the person, "Oh my God! Well, what did you do? That must have been awful." And he nonchalantly said, "Yeah, I went for a run." Yeah. So a theory I I remember hearing that this years ago and I had to really dig deep to find this information again because I didn't come easily to find it but so apparently went on this run he apparently ran until 2am in the pouring rain and there's been some kind of speculation with this so the morphine administered to his mum goes on to be his MO later on with how he he kills patients so he goes on this run for two in the morning and they're thinking that possibly there's a link between this death of his mother the morphine and this high you can get with running a runner's high mm-hmm. um, just to kind of tell you what a runner's high is is when you hit your stride your body releases hormones called endorphins popular cultures identify these as chemicals behind runner's highs a short lasting deeply euphoric state following intense exercise there's a thought there perhaps he kind of went on to kind of do what he did was mm-hmm. he linked this whole thing with that sense of high, like the, the the feeling of euphoria as well, associated with death. Yeah, as you said, you know he did struggle at school. He wasn't, you know, doing as well as he probably expected of himself in his A levels. He got B in physics, C in biology, and D in chemistry. But he still managed to get into medical school. Low standards there from the old medical school. 
Absolutely. He um, he became very interested in uh, the field of medicine shortly after his mother's death. So obviously he had also observed this particular doctor administering uh, morphine injections to ease her pain. And I think he viewed that as kind of putting her out of any kind of discomfort, which fascinated him because he wanted to be there to help his dying mother. Yeah. And the fact that he couldn't do that maybe led to him. Yeah, and he apparently wasn't at all interested in going into the medicine until after his mother's death which you could argue he, he felt helpless when as happened to his mum. And perhaps at this stage, he wanted to go into that field to actually, you know, for the good, to help people, help people ease their pain. So Shipman studied medicine at Leeds School of Medicine at the University of Leeds. And during this period of time, he, he really struggled to make friends, which was kind of a, a, a theme while his mother was alive as well, yeah, yeah. as well. However, then in 1966, he met and subsequently married Primrose May Oxterby. Um, and the pair had four children. So she was a 17-year-old window dresser. Shipman graduated in 1970 and began working at the Pontefract General Infirmary. Um, however, in 1974, he took his first position as a general practitioner at the Abraham Omerod Medical Centre in Todd Morden. It's at this point, I mean, one of, a lot of the documentaries and podcasts I listened to said that the guy was manic. So anything he applied to, it would be all or nothing, essentially. And he'd throw himself into his work, throw himself into his studies, and he worked himself into the ground in this this role of this yeah. first role as a Appar- GP. Apparently, um, the staff were already there, some, some older doctors and whatnot. They said he was coming in with all these kind of new ideas and this new way of doing things, and they really benefited from having him there. He was very good at what he did. He was a hard worker. Um, but the, the year after, in 1975, his health actually deteriorated, and he started to suffer from seizures um, and blackouts. And the doctors there, obviously, they were called to his home because he was like, he passed out um, in the bath. And then they actually were kind of, you know, worried about him. And then his wife actually opted to drive him to and from work um, just to help with his seizures. It turns out that the seizures weren't just from health-related issues. He actually had, at this point, become addicted to um, pethidine, which is a painkiller for childbirth. And he was injecting himself with 600 to 700 milligrams of pethidine a day, which is roughly 14 injections of 50 milligrams every day. Wow. So the side effects from pethidine is um, confusion, mood altered, mild euphoria, linking back to the euphoria, hallucinations, dysphoria, agitation, anxiety, nervousness, and increased risk of delirium in elderly patients. While obviously uh, working himself into the ground, he's going through all of those different emotions, different feelings. That's that's a that's a complex environment, and he's looking after vulnerable people at the same time. Yeah. So, and at that time as well, the patients uh, or the community, they could pick who was their doctor and who they want to see, and he was very, very popular by all accounts. So he was, you know, constantly booked up. So he's burning the candles at both ends, and this very much comes to the fore when uh, he is uh, he is caught. But before we continue, Tom, we've got a fantastic deal for our I Could Murder a Podcast listeners, and that deal involves beer. Beer? I love beer. I often think, oh, I wish I could subscribe to something monthly and get eight craft beers a month, but this is, is there anything out there for me, Ben? Tom, I've got the answer to your question, and that answer is Beer 52. Oh, what? Tell me more. Beer 52 is the world's largest beer club, Tom, and they'd like okay. you to be a part of our club. Yeah, I'm getting keen. Tell okay, me more. Okay, there's over 170,000 beer members worldwide. That's a lot of people, so they must be very much enjoying this. If there's, it's a big party. Yeah, it's a huge party. <laughs> huge party, and there's room for one Can more. Can I come in? <laughs> knock, knock. 
That's what I said, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Well, let me tell you a bit more. Not only do you get eight craft beers a month, which range in different themes every time you get a new box. That's interesting. You also get a magazine. The thing is, if I have a magazine there, I've got beer, usually I'm a bit peckish. So as well as your beers and your reading material, you also get a snack. Amazing. And if you don't like the dark beer, Tom, because I know you like your lighter options, you can choose the light option package. Well, Ben, you actually got me wrong there. I do like the dark beer as well, so I'm probably going to stick to that. Where would I go in order to actually unlock this. I'm sure there's some kind of website I need to go to. Tom, if you want into this particular party, head on over to beer52.com forward slash ICMAP and just cover the postage cost of £5.95 to get all of this now. Straight to your door. I'm in. Tom, another great thing about being a member of the world's largest beer club is that you can pause or cancel at any time. Amazing. So I just go to www.beer52.com forward slash ICMAP I just pay 5 95 postage and then I get eight craft beers Tom I'll see you at the party <laughs> let's go cheers yeah so he's when he's discovered to be um, essentially forging documents um, to obtain these drugs he was actually placed in psychiatric hospital and detoxed from using the pethidine and was diagnosed with having long standing severe depression during this time and he's discharged after two months his seizures weirdly stopped as well at this point, just kind of proving that they were all brought on by taking these these drugs. He would then be fined for forging the documents um, and was ordered, to, and he was ordered to be suspended. But from hearing from health professionals from the psychiatric uh, facility about his mental health, they reinstated his license, thinking it was down to you know pressure and he was doing this because this is not going to do that again. So that was a stage when you know they could have like been, oh, this guy seems a bit, yeah. A bit of a wild card and maybe we want to keep an eye on him but um, he managed to kind of get his way through that and he was able to go back to work and they reinstated his license. Well that's it and I mean if they'd spoken with any of his patients or any of his colleagues I mean he had a really good reputation yeah. in the in the local community so maybe that backed it up. I know that he didn't leave that particular the, the Abraham Omerod Medical Centre in particularly good terms. No. Uh, they wanted him disbarred but in the following year he then became a GP at the Donnybrook Medical Centre in Hyde which is near Manchester in 1977. And he'd remain there for a long period of time and continue working as a GP until in 1993 he decided to open up his own surgery. So very, very successful um, when he arrived in Hyde. That's when he's quickly built up his reputation of a very much a likeable, very socially active. There's lots of photos of him at like kind of community events and parties. Um, quite quirky. Well, some, kind of some people kind of classed him as your, you know, your classic GP, like he was, you know, part of the community, uh, very likable for the patients, that the patients all really liked him. And he decided this was the good time for him to go and set up his own set up his own surgery on 21 Market Street in 1993. But apparently he was quite sassy when he left. So as we mentioned before, he kind of thought a lot of himself. And when he left this place, which he was there for 12 years, so I mean, you know, you're established part of the team and he made some remarks, well, I'm going to leave this and start my own place and I'm going to take all my patients with me, which was actually around 3,000 patients, it's believed. So when he did leave, it did actually result in the practice he was working at, suffering financially when he left. And he, as you said, he was a very well-respected member of the community and a lot of people wanted to continue um, him being their GP. In 1983, he was actually interviewed on a TV programme about um, the mentally ill and how they should be treated in the community. And he does seem like a kind of classic GP. There's, there's, he's not being, he just seems very kind of, yeah. By the book. Yeah, there's nothing to alert you or be worried about. And he was known locally as the good doctor, and apparently the elderly patients uh, they adored him. 
Yeah. Um, which I think he very much loved that kind of attention and the trust that they're putting him within him. Yeah, and a lot of his patients were older females as well. So again, there was potential kind of, um, he was kind of viewing them in a similar light to his own mother and how with, with her long-term battle with illness. So uh, he's either then viewing it, depending on which side you believe, as wanting to put those people out of their misery or there's something, you know, slightly more sinister at foot. Even though he was loved by his patients, um, his colleagues actually thought, you know, they weren't too fond of him. They thought he was, he was very confident, arrogant, condescending and very difficult with people that he considered his inferiors. Um, yeah, his medical colleagues did not like him one bit as he was a bit of a know-it-all. But yeah, he, as you said, like from the outside of it, um, very good person in the community. He raised funds for his doctor's surgery. Um, he didn't he didn't go out in the town a lot. He spent most of his time with his family at home. He seemed from the outside a very normal guy. So from the outside looking in, things are perfect for Shipman. He's got a successful practice, a very, very popular GP with an endless list of patients who absolutely adore him, loving wife and children at home. Um, you know, everything's going well for the Shipman family. Uh, so we're going to look into the timeline now and understand exactly what was going on behind closed doors and beneath the surface. So 17th of March, 1975, on the eve of her 71st birthday, while Shipman was working at the Abraham Ormead Medical Practice in Todmorden, Eve Lyons became Shipman's first victim. Lyons had terminal cancer and Shipman administered the lethal injection in front of her unsuspecting husband, Richard. If you're a doctor there, medical professional, uh, you're going to believe what he says implicitly, especially with the reputation he had. And that's exactly what happened to Shipman. That's pretty much, apart from obviously it was his mother rather than... His wife, um, the doctor administered a dose of morphine, resulting in the death. Well, the death happened very shortly after. So that is pretty much play by play what happened to his mother. Yeah, and I mean, if you've got a, a very popular, successful doctor in the room with you and you've got a partner who's been suffering and, and you just want her to be out of pain, you're not going to question the dosage or what's in it or anything like that. You think she's in the safest possible pair of hands and... Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, this being the very first one as well, the question is, how intentional was the first one? That's true. Um, like we said a bit, a bit with um, Bev Allett before, you probably are taught, you know, what a lethal dose is at medical school, medical school you'd like to think, but this is going to be him testing the kind of parameters and what, what he's able to do. So from 1977 to 1992, uh, during this period at a new practice in Hyde where uh, Shipman was a general practitioner, Shipman murdered another 71 of his patients. And again, that followed a similar MO wherein they were older, he was visiting them in their own home out in the community um, he would sit with them claim that he was giving them something for their pain um, you know nine times out of ten they were on their own they didn't have any family with them or partners with them and he would then initiate that overdose of morphine well, there's a few people in the, in the kind of community who were questioning some of these things um, a lot of the time when people pass away especially if it's old age it tends to be the they're in their sleep um, but a lot of times with this they're fully dressed sitting on a chair um, which is apparently quite unusual for the amount of that people to die in that particular kind of way. Yeah, he got he managed to get away. Yeah, seventy one those patients. Yeah. Obviously, there's such a staggering number to this case. We're not going to be able to go into every single patient, but the MO did very much. It was very much the same thing for each case. It was a lethal injection. Yeah, and with, with an elderly, um, it tended to be an elderly uh, woman. Over that fifteen year period, then while he was working at Donnybrook, um, that's averaging kind of five victims a year. Which is which is staggering that it's such a big, vast period of time as well. Um, but I suppose those numbers, if it's five older people passing away each year, that's not as 
suspicious, I guess, as the numbers will slowly become as he moves into his own practice yeah. where he's got a slightly more free reign. That's it. I mean, he, obviously, he's working with colleagues at that time who would have been very conscious of if his numbers, of his patients were, you know, high exceed, highly exceeding theirs. They might have been a bit you know, questioning that. But um, yeah, it is staggering the amount of people that he murdered during that time. So yeah, in 1985, the police did investigate a possible murder of one of Shipman's former patients, but no action is taken against him. So in 1993, Shipman establishes his own surgery at the now infamous 21 Market Street in Hyde, having fallen out with his previous practice partners where he murdered the remaining 143 of his victims. That, that, that number just doesn't sound real, does it? I mean, he is one of the most notorious serial killers well in yeah. the UK history isn't he Absolutely. so it, yeah so many, many many of the victims were found at home as I mentioned in a chair with their sleeve rolled up some also died in the surgery it's quite shocking that given their death circumstances this went unnoticed for so long yeah some some died he literally would come into his surgery and then pass away on his table and some people took kind of comfort in that the fact they knew their like their mother or their grandma really respected him and yeah. they, they would have been dying somewhere which they felt very comfortable and very happy the kind of weird thing is here that still would be the case because they wouldn't know that he's administering yeah. too much. The numbers are just absolutely baffling in this case. In March 1998, undertakers Frank Massey and Son started to question the unusually high numbers of deaths at the 21 Market Street practice. The neighbouring practice found that the deaths under Shipman's care were 10 times that of their own. So that would, that would immediately alarm bells ring in there. Yeah. And that's business for undertakers and they're still questioning it. I don't think they're happy, to, even if that's the business and they don't want their bodies, do they? No, not at all. Not at all. I'm just a, an honest, suspicious undertaker. So this was reported to the coroner and then the Greater Manchester Police. However, the investigation failed to carry out such basic checks and Chipman's criminal record of contact with the General Medical Council. So yeah, if they looked into it a bit harder and saw the fact he was forging things before, they might have went to look into things a bit more in depth. They also failed to even contact Shipman or the families or the could-be victims. So due to Shipman also doctoring the paperwork of his victims, the investigation also failed to find the inconsistencies between the death certificate and records of the 19 patients that were investigated. So yeah, he had a computer, there's lots of footage of this, on, he has a computer where he basically he, he would change how they originally the death said on the, on the certificate and you know the kind of notes he had on them as a patient make sure they'd all work out so if people did look it would look like it made sense but back in the day with the computers it kind of left you would leave a kind of digital like um, breadcrumbs for people to actually be able to find things because we couldn't just wipe it as easily. If they had checked the Shipman's background, they would have discovered Shipman's history of forging documents. This failure to find a link led to Shipman killing three more patients before his arrest in 1998. There's another thing about one of the, uh, as a taxi driver, he would take a lot of the old patients to go over to Shipman and see Shipman or take Shipman to see them. And he was like, he made a very quick assertion that the link between people that are seeing Shipman and who were seen perfectly healthy in his taxi for life Selling the next day being dead. And he actually made a note of all these things and he, he did speak to one of the investigating officers about this. And that also led to be good evidence in terms of getting a shipping convicted. Yeah, there were lots of people in the community that possibly had, had, had previously been massive fans and advocates of, of Shipman that are now are starting to grow suspicious as well. I think there were other nurses, you know, other GPs, other, other healthcare professionals, but you've got then undertakers and taxi drivers that are also very, very highly suspicious of, of Shipman. Yeah, so with those with the undertakers, I mean, they their doctor was Shipman. So 
you know, they went to see him and, and, you know, they spoke to him about it as well. And he just very much reassured them, no, they're just elderly and this happened. And he, he explained the things. And obviously, you want to believe him, easy to believe him. And, and sadly, that's kind of, they were, oh, okay, no, it makes sense. It all, it all kind of yeah. adds up. You can only argue that so far. So on the 24th of June 1998, Shipman went to visit his final victim, uh, 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy. Reportedly, he went there to get a blood sample. She was said to be in lively and healthy spirits the day before. However, she was found dead later that day. Shipman signed her death certificate, stating her death as old age. So yeah, this is the one that kind of really, um, basically was the one that created so much suspicion around Shipman that he would go on to get caught. So Grundy's daughter, who was actually a solicitor at the time, um, became very suspicious of her mother's death, um, obviously because she'd you know, spoken to her and she knew she was kind of in good spirits and, and well. But um, it was mainly the fact that her will had been changed. And it had been changed and it was quite apparently quite shoddily changed as well. It was um, a dramatic change. Yeah, it basically said, All my estate, money and house to my, my doctor, my family are not in need and I want to reward him for the care he has given to me and the people of Hyde. He is sensible enough to handle any problems this may give him. He's kind of gone, okay, this whole time he hasn't been changing wheels, he hasn't been pocketing money. He, he seems to be killing for the sake of a hunger or he, it's a desire he has. We'll go into motives later. But um, this time he seemed to have gone, I'm going to change her will. And police said it's very shoddily done. Um, so some people think maybe he did it because he wanted to get caught. But Grundy's daughter, she actually had the will that was written 10 years prior to this in her possession. So once she heard that this will had been changed, she decided to do a little bit of like digging herself. Yeah. And there's there witnesses on the will. And she went to go speak to one of the witnesses. And essentially... Shipman had duped the person into signing this piece of paper by folding the piece of paper over and saying it was for medical purposes for Grundy if you could just sign this we can get her some more care so this guy signed it thinking it was for you know the positive things but he didn't realise he was signing a witness to a will of a woman who was about to be murdered I mean he's got to the stage now where I mean even the, the manipulation to the will is, is quite lazy Yeah, he's done the old folded paper trick for, for the signature Yeah, but it's a £400,000 estate as well which for 1998 I mean for any time that's, that's a lot of money it's not just it's like it's a small amount of money and it might just go unnoticed he's got very very arrogant Yeah, um, and you know this is what 240 people now yeah so the thing as well here is so after kind of Grundy's daughter kind of really was pushing the police and brought this thing to her attention, they actually would let her go on to exhume her body and find find high levels of morphine in her muscle tissue and bloodstream, which didn't link up to the reported dying of old age. The thing about the thing about morphine it isn't it isn't essentially the best drug for a killer to use because it stays in the system for a long time. And the thing is Shipman would have known this as a doctor, so it's questionable why he used it. But yeah, it could be just down to the fact that he was so arrogant he thought he wouldn't get caught. Or did he want someone to stop him from, from murdering? That's another theory. <laughs> this woman apparently was really big in the community, really, you know, always like kind of helping people out, always wanted to help out. Even at her old age, she, was, she apparently was like, you know, a real big figurehead in the community. Shipman <laughs> claimed that she was a heroin addict when he was like, you know, fingers pointed at him. So it's like he changed, like, oh, she died of old age. Oh, you know, she also was a heroin addict. He was kind of like just, yeah really really bizarre and it also would have been made slightly uh, more believable if the will hadn't been typed out on Shipman's typewriter <laughs> and yeah. he, he claimed oh no I just lent her it and then th they claimed well how did you get it back and he couldn't come up with an answer yeah he, he, he 
he's so, he was so arrogant because he kind of got away with obviously the kind of forging and taking drugs beforehand. The other police investigation, which kind of got shrugged off. Yeah, he, he, I seem to think he was a bit invincible here, I think. Yeah, and it, that kind of goes back to his early years where he, where he was top of his junior school. He was a, an athlete. He was the favourite child of his, two, of his two other siblings. Same as well when he opened his own practice. There was an air of arrogance there. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and this stage, there was nowhere left to hide in Hyde. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So in August of 1998, taxi driver John Shaw told police that he suspected Shipman of killing at least 21 of Shipman's own patients. Um, he would often drive elderly patients within the community to hospital, uh, to appointments, many of whom appeared in perfectly good health, and suddenly they would die under Shipman's care. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a staggering number in itself, 21 patients. Yeah. Um, and, you know, un- unbeknownst to John Shaw, he would, more often than not, be given them, driving them on their, f- their final yeah, yeah. journey, you know, which is really, really sad. And I guess he might have, well... In hindsight, he must have felt an element of guilt afterwards. It would not, not just it would have felt horrible, wouldn't it? Yeah, it knowing did. that he yeah. left them there. So, the 7th of September 1998, following these accusations, Shipman was arrested. Over the next two months, another 11 of Shipman's victims' bodies were exhumed and re examined. Police experts also checked Shipman's computer and found forged entries to support the cause of death on the death certificates of his victims, as the computer recorded the time and date that the records were amended. So, yeah, his, his computer kind of. Don't know over a little bit there, um, but yeah, it's. I mean, that's a horrible thing, you know. You kind of like you, you lay your kind of um, family member to rest or your friend to rest, and their body's been dug up and examined again. That's like, I can imagine that'd be very kind of um, traumatic. Um, but it was very much necessary in order for them to get what they needed in order to convict Shipman. So the thing about the documents on the computer were a lot of his patients were cremated, but mm-hmm. because the documents lined up and he amended dates and he changed things on that, they were able to even convict him on 
some of the ones that the bodies that cremated anyway because yeah, they, yeah. they all kind of fitted the pattern and they're like okay well you've done that for this reason as well and it was this uh, Kathleen Grundy as well this was the only time that uh, Shipman kind of manipulated a will as well so it's, yeah. it's argued on kind of both sides well uh, did he uh, do this intentionally so that he would get caught um, and that his life was out of control or had he done this because he wanted the money and planned to retire outside of the UK yeah because there was a theory of him yeah him using that because he was yeah, worried he was just going to yeah, give it legs and then use that to get a new life wasn't it yeah. so I don't think he wanted to get caught I think he wanted to I think it was ar- just his arrogance yeah. he yeah, just absolutely. thought he could, step, he could step it up there and you know have a nice retirement with that money so one of Shipman's patients was a guy called Jim King who was wrongly diagnosed with cancer and after three months of horrible chemotherapy Shipman was told that he never had cancer um, but he kept that quiet and kept that to himself Jesus. and the reason he did that was, and he kept prescribing massive amounts of morphine to Jim King to take for the pain and whatnot. But apparently if you have someone on your books who's terminal, you can then start ordering massive quantities of morphine in. So he essentially was using Jim King as a front as a front to get this morphine in. Because if you were just ordering that on the side, it would be it'd be questioned. So basically Jim King's father was a bit suspicious about well he he wanted to know have answers from Shipman. I think Shipman maybe was a bit wasn't very clear about certain reasons for doing things. And so his dad would go in and ask, ask questions. But then uh uh, Shipman would go on to actually kill his father by administering too much morphine and he did that on Christmas Eve um, so it appeared that he questions were asked and he basically to stop that happening he killed this guy's father yeah Shipman was told three different times that Jim King was wrongly diagnosed with cancer but he decided not to tell him and also chemotherapy it can you know take years off your life if you know it's there to save you it can drastically affect your body it's very hard on your body but he, this is how kind of sinister he was. He, he thought, oh, this is my gateway to getting this drug. No questions asked. I'm going to use it. Yeah, not just the physical battle that you have to go through, but mentally as well. Oh, definitely, That's, yeah. And emotionally, Jesus Christ. There's some other things that kind of stood out for um, Shipman like that kind of was a bit like people questioned was he was more likely to certify deaths on Mondays, Tuesdays and Fridays, where every other practices were evenly spread across the week. He had a set routine. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he it was he was rumoured that he possibly stole jewellery from the deceased victims. Basically, yeah, he just seemed to be get very arrogant and very cocksure of himself. I mean, by this stage, you know, he had killed hundreds of people. Yeah. And he got away with it. So I guess you can kind of understand where his extreme arrogance came from in that in that regard that's it and i mean the arrogance uh, maintained in the victims he would select so he was only going for vulnerable people that yes although they were in good health they were hardly in a position to defend themselves it was uh it was it was kind of a deceptive way that he would 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 end their lives as well because they would they were placing their trust into him um i mean as a result of the um investigation into Kathleen Grundy through 15 other investigations they found the exact pattern that he had been administering lethal doses of diamorphine subsequently then less than 24 hours later signing patients death certificates and then falsifying their medical records to indicate that they had been in poor health so even the ones that hadn't been in poor health he was going back to kind of adjust the previous yeah. six months to a year of their yes, life yes the dates the dates just added up there and it made it very clear what he was doing it's been suggested um, and this is from an independent article that one of Shipman's youngest victims could have been four years old which is not something you really hear about or link to him at all. The inquiry identified 218 victims and estimated his total victim count could be could be up to 250. About 80% of them were elderly women. 
Shipman's youngest confirmed victim was a 41-year-old man. But as we mentioned, it's always been suspected that he could have killed a four-year-old as well. So yeah, the 215 victims, 171 were women and 44 were men. Five of these people lived in the same street. Nine lived in the same sheltered housing complex. Just, I'm surprised the word didn't spread a bit that, you know, oh, the amount of people were going to him and passing yeah. away. Well, word was starting to spread, but yeah, no not, one was taking it seriously. But not in the community as such. It's more kind of in the practices around them. They were kind of noticing that the death rate was a lot, a lot higher than, like even 10 times higher than other doctors, like G, um, doctor's surgeries. It was like the, the death rate there was 10 times higher, but people were still going there. Yeah, and it's, it's a horrible thought to imagine that that kind of thing is still in practice today. With, with you know, We obviously did the, the Beverly Allick case, which was slightly different. But um, it was also suggested that statistical monitoring could have led to an alarm being raised at the end of 1996, where at the time, he'd, I say only, he'd only killed 67 people. Yeah. So that could have saved the lives of 119 people, uh, a minimum of that, uh, by 1998. So in that two-year period, it's just... Oh, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's the num- that's what's always kind of not put me off covering this case, but just when you look at the numbers... It doesn't seem real or possible, like that number of yeah. people. It's and in such a cowardly manner. Definitely, yeah. It's, it's the very yeah. It's it's it's, it's opposite to the end of the scale of Beverly Allen. Obviously, they were they were very vulnerable children, babies, and then like you got elderly patients again who are vulnerable. It, it's it's going after the, the vulnerable um, part of society, which is so evil. During his interview, um, once he's been apprehended, Shipman's joking and light lighthearted demeanor. When entering the police station, kind of changed. Apparently, he was very um, dismissive to the detectives. He wanted, he thought he should be handled by the kind of leading detect, uh, leading superintendent. He thought that he deserved that. He merited that level of authority. Exactly. Yeah. And apparently, when when asking questions, he he refused to answer. He would just stare at the detectives' ties and meticulously counted the polka dots on it. He refused to look at any of the victims of the uh, any photos of the victims when they're shown to him. He just would look away and not answer. It's clear that he wasn't going to cooperate. There was one interview where they they had him, and this is before going back to before his actual conviction. He was being interviewed, and for some reason, he ends up facing away from the detectives. And uh, it's later been analysed. It was on that that what's that uh, channel you've got a subscription for that did the Discovery seven? Plus. Discovery Plus, and um, he gave Shipman basically gave his guilt away. This is the, they've come back to this after the fact but he um when they were mentioning uh, the name of one of his victims despite facing away from them so they couldn't read his body language he held his breath for nine seconds as soon as her name was mentioned yeah breathing pattern changes so completely she, changed yeah so um in court he told relatives that he had called ambulances but further checks on the phone record shows this to be false and yes, we mentioned Shipman altered his patient's medical records, so it appeared that women had chronic health problems, but in fact they were actually healthy. So Shipman's trial began at Preston Crown Court on the 5th of October 1999. He was charged with the murders of 15 women by lethal injection of diamorphine, all between the years of 1995 and 1998. On the 31st of January 2000, after six days of deliberation, the jury found Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. Shipman was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. The thing I mentioned earlier on about his wife Primrose, who was, um, you know, a very doting housewife, you know, we said before, um, would drive him to and from work when he was suffering with these seizures. People were a bit shocked with her behaviour during this whole time when he was going going in and out of court. Uh, Primrose had unwavering support for her husband that was noticed throughout the trial. She attended every day of his trial and had made weekly visits to Wakefield Prison. 
uh, where there was reports of her them holding hands, um, sharing a kiss and not appearing to have a care in the world. The Guardian says that Primrose baffled relatives or husband's victims as she queued for food with them during breaks in the trial and even tried to make small talk. The same article also goes on to claim that Killer's wife attempted to share round chocolates in the court and attributes her behaviour to the pathological denial of her husband's crimes. Yeah. Like we said a few times with these kind of things, obviously she's going to want to believe that the person she fell in love with, the person she mothered the children of, she wants to believe that he's an innocent man and this is just all, you know, all wrong. And I guess you could kind of look at that and if you think that was the case supporting your husband if you believe he was true um, if you, yeah but it's very kind of ill like it's it's it's, it's a ill thought out the idea of sharing chocolates to the victims Definitely. relatives in the courtroom Definitely. would be would be go down well it seemed that the final days um of shipman's trial his wife did seem to entertain the idea that maybe he did actually commit the crimes she wrote a letter to her husband where she wrote tell me everything no matter what uh, it's a really interesting lady so as well as uh, as well as all the support tom mentioned she actually sold the family's house and used the money uh, obtained from this sale to rent out a series of homes near the jail in which her husband began serving his life sentence. As Tom said, she believed firmly that he was innocent, wherein a majority of the other family members felt that, that he wasn't. So with, with Primrose as well, um, she was promised immunity from the prosecution and uh, if, if she would uh, come to the stand, but she never did. Um, so therefore she was never kind of convicted of any kind of wrongdoing or any kind of uh, involvement. But numerous people also believed that Primrose was in turn another one of Shipman's victims in that he'd manipulated yeah. her throughout those many years and his control over her meant living through the effects of terror. Sure, yeah. So she kind of had a bit of Stockholm Syndrome with him as well and, you know, she would do anything he said and, you know, believe everything he said. Shipman would go on to die by suicide. Um, he hung himself in prison a day before his 58th birthday and that's at Wakefield High Security Jail. Following Shipman's suicide, a fellow inmate at Wakefield, David Smith, gave testimony that he overheard a prison officer telling the killer to go and hang himself and if he didn't know how, he'd be shown. Wow. That's a prisoner in jail, so you'd... Who knows if it, maybe you're selling a story that that's you know allegedly what they heard. The Sun went on to uh, print a very classy headline as the Sun would do: "Ship, ship, hooray!" Oh. Yeah, but people believe the timing of a suicide. It was no uh, kind of. It was no coincidence. It was before he was 60. It basically would guarantee his wife a lump sum of £100,000 and an annual pension of £10,000 mm -hmm. if he died before the age of 60. If he, if he went on to, to live a past 60, um, Primrose would only have received a fraction of that. Because prison cells are just designed specifically so people can't hang themselves. He tied a ligature around his neck and legs and suffocated himself in a kneeling position using his curtains. The victims, um, relatives, you know, were very frustrated. He got... He, Basically, took the easy way out. Didn't have yeah. to kind of serve his time properly. Ironically, uh, on his on his death, they, they looked around his cell, and on the bedside table was a half-read copy of Henry VIII, which is a story about a scheming king who was riddled with guilt, having killed his cousin. I don't believe that Chipman was riddled with guilt in any way, shape, or form. No, not at all. I mean, he's gone out on exactly his own terms. Yep. Um, it's all, as you said, I mean, there's no admirable quality to it in that he's done it to serve his, his, his wife or leave yeah. her in, in, with some security. Although he had a very, very, served a very, very brief portion of his sentence, during the brief portion of time he served, he became friends with fellow serial killer Peter Moore uh, while incarcerated and the pair quickly struck up a bond. But yeah, I mean, he, he knew as a doctor he only needed a four-minute window. He was under hourly observations. Yeah. And at the uh, as the 5 a.m. Uh, final check was made on him, he knew that he had then that window of time to 
to to leave this world on his own terms. Yeah. Uh, and there were very split kind of feelings and emotions uh, when this became, you know, national news that he had taken his own life. There was a really interesting uh, quote from Home Secretary at the time, David Blunkett, who said that celebration was tempting. Uh, and I quote, you wake up and you receive a call telling you Shipman has topped himself and you think, is it too early to open up a bottle? And then you discover that everybody's actually very upset that he's done it. Which is interesting kind of choice words for a Home Secretary at the time. Yeah, I guess it, the, the upset meaning that he didn't serve his term and he didn't, you know, suffer as much as he could have done. This is when a lot of people kind of speculated the theories about why he went on to do what he did. Some people suggest that he was avenging the death of his mother, who died when he was 17. Um, some people think it was to do with um, the anger of seeing these women outlive his mother. Yeah. Others suggest he was simply couldn't resist playing God, um, proving that he could take life as well as save it. The one which is 100% not true is, is more of a charitable view on it. The fact that uh, he was injecting old ladies with morphine as a way of easing the burdens of the NHS. Which is a very, very bold claim that he'd be doing it just, just to help his fellow prof medical professionals out. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, that, it's that power trip, I think, and the addiction of being, at, being able so to play God. Was he going to donate that £400,000 from Rundy to the NHS? I don't think he was. My personal opinion on it is I think it was, uh, yeah, he liked the control of it. He liked to be able to control the situation. He liked the fact he was so respected. And he must have just got a thrill of getting away with it. Yeah, as we said, he wasn't... Um, getting money from it or any kind of other reward is that straight right to the back of when his mother passed away and then he got that runner's high mm. the euphoria there that sensation yeah that's the theory which I've, I've always found very interesting about the case was the idea of the runner's high being linked to it and it all seems to be so perfectly arranged it's quite an odd thing to do obviously that would be such a poignant moment in his life witnessing his mum die mm -hmm. going on that run till two in the morning in the pouring rain and that kind of feeling and that link it could, it could well have cemented itself in his kind of psyche and that making him Similar to serial killers, if they get that thrill or that ultimate high from taking a life, I guess he's associating it as slightly different. But yeah, when the, since the life leaves someone, yeah, but it's that it's the numbers that are just staggering, they're so high that they just, yeah, they can't possibly. Where do you even start the number of families that that's impacted? Yeah, it's it's staggering, absolutely staggering. In his trial, a forensic psychiatrist said of Shipman, Dr. Shipman is a fairly extreme example of a control freak. The dreadful thing is he killed lots of people, not for pleasure, but to make himself feel more normal. The experience of killing was intensely personal and private to him, and he's never going to give that up. It's like we, like we spoke about one of the potential uh, motives for the episode last week. Like Some people commit these crimes and do these things simply because they can. Yeah. And he got away with it for so many years, so so many lives that he almost felt invincible. That's it. And like, I mean, going back to a few series now, Chikatilo, for example. He, yeah. He he just felt he could get. He was being so blasé with it, just doing it on the street, trying to lure people in, and he just like. I mean, this guy. I mean, shipping killed five people on the same street. Like we said, nine people lived in the same sheltered housing complexes. It, he wasn't really being thought out about who he was picking, other than picking people who he could, you know, in theory, say old age or whatever. He was able to get away with it that way, but it didn't really make sense. It wasn't as, as thought out in the sense of picking people sporadically around um, yeah. Hyde, which wouldn't probably be linked into linked or from people from different social groups or whatever. In the year 2000, the GMC erased Shipman's name from the Register of Medical Practitioners. Yeah, it, it, it's such a baffling case. And again, like there was people like looking into it and, and before at certain stages and they kind of brushed it to one side. 
Mm. I think this was the kind of infancy of the computer. If you look at the kind of computer we had at that stage, yeah. people probably weren't as aware of kind of looking into those things as they are now, certainly. They've, they've obviously come leaps, come on leaps and bounds with this kind of case now with monitoring people who are looking after the vulnerable. Definitely, yeah. And, and, then, and then credit to the, uh, the undertaker and the taxi driver as well, because they're both, although yeah. their, um, their pleads to the to local authorities didn't do anything, they had their suspicions from day one. Yeah. Um, you know, they didn't need hindsight for that. So it's, yeah. And then he's the only killer that is then the first person on the scene in terms of any kind of medical or calling an ambulance yeah. or calling an undertaker. The one that's signing their death certificates, it's a unique yeah, case. Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally someone who, you, you you know, if you're feeling a bit unwell or like you, you if that's the person you want to see yeah. by your bedside. So a garden in memory of Shipman's victims was opened in Hyde Park on the 30th of July 2005. Rumored to be 250 victims. It's staggering. It's literally staggering. Um, and that's the thing, you know, maybe that's all the people from that time which they could link to him, but yeah. who knows? Because um, some people might not have asked for them to investigate other things or the evidence could have, he could have done it in a slightly different MO. As we said before, the, the, you know, there's been a victim believed to be as young as four years old. Who knows how the, how wide this could stretch. And that's it. And, and all of those victims have families. Uh, the families on Shipman taking his own life felt cheated um, as, as Shipman's suicide meant that they would never have closure and the satisfaction of either a confession or any kind of justification as to why he committed his crimes. Yeah, there's no justice there for, no, the, definitely. for the families. And that is the case of Harold Shipman, um, Dr. Death. Obviously, there were so many victims within that case, we couldn't look at every single one. Uh, we're going to go into a little bit of trivia about the case and little other little side points about the case and our lookalikes we like to do yeah in terms of lookalikes i mean before we get into the actual specific ones i just feel like he looks like any kind of re teacher or history teacher from secondary school days uh, the type of guy that would roll his sleeves up but only for sports day yeah yeah for lookalikes i've got um i think it's a very clear one it's robin williams from goodwill hunting it is your fault. It is your fault. Uh, shit me I've got Robin Williams as well. Um, non-specific film. That, but is, has that got, is from a film. What film? I don't know, Ben. You picked it, but it's not just Robin Williams. I'm going to be stern with. If we could just he's uh, reveal to the audience. You can just reverse. They're going to see it on the screen. You pop it up. Okay. <laughs> Silly me. It's been a while. <laughs> ben once famously photoshopped an image on Word. Um, For his birthday. Word. For me, I've got Steven Spielberg's louder and more successful brother. Why? See, lookalikes, you can't keep doing. We've been it, we've it, been gone a while, Tom. It's a, you can't do a spin-off and like really make it go down the road of it. It's lookalikey. Well, we can edit some out if there's too many. Only if there's too many. Do you want another one? No. On Twitter, somebody put Shipman's beard on Matt Hancock, and it's terrifying. He looks. Is that a lookalikey? Are we doing this it looks now? Just like okay, him. just doing Twitter garbage. Go on. Look at that, Dan. It's just how's that just terrifying? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Dan likes it. It's not terrifying though, is it, Dan? I think so. No. Imagine getting kissed by that. Why are you imagine getting kissed by shipman? Did the not <laughs> ship. Tim Wilson from the Circle. That's the not... guy that's told to look like Robin Williams. Peter Curran. Dan. Stop showing Dan. Laughing uncontrollably, guys. He's not. He looks stern. 
there was also a bit of a uproar when uh, Liverpool Football Club had a, a keyring go on for sale that was supposedly a Jurgen Klopp keyring. It doesn't look like Klopp, and you know exactly who it looks yeah, like. Yeah, see, that's probably your best one, but that, but that wasn't yours. Thank you. And then I shouldn't have a go at the wife. Obviously, she supported her. You know, she did what she did, but she looks a lot like Kathy Burke. Kathy Perk. Um, <laughs> Kathy Burke from Harry Enfield. Uh, so, yeah, probably my strongest one. Um, probably the... Uh, we'll go with Man- Matt Hancock. That's not a lookalike, because that's literally got his face on it. That's why it's a lookalike. That's Matt Hancock's face. Just it's not Shipman's Ma- beard. It's Matt Hancock. It's, it's Shipman's face. You don't know who it is now. I know. Oh, geez. All right. <laughs> I think only Dan's going to find it funny. That's probably um, so. In Viz magazine, that we posted about this before on, on our Instagram, uh, Harold and Fred they make ladies dead. It was a cartoon strip they used to feature on there with mass murderers Harold Shipman and Fred West getting up to hijinks, which I still find how that was able to be printed. I I have no idea. Different time. Different time, Ben. <laughs> Different time, and you know what time it is now, Ben? Time for us to run you a bath, get you to bed. You dirty bugger. Nah. Different living arrangements. Um, anyway. For now. Well, thank you guys for watching and li- or listening to today's episode. It's been a very, yeah, it's a very interesting case, this. Thank you to anyone who requested this. And if you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to give us a like uh, um, and subscribe to the channel. Leave us a little comment. If you listen to an audio, why not leave us a review or, or follow us on there? It does really help us out. And if you can't wait another week uh, for a slice of Tom and Ben and Dan. Yeah. Was that you? Yeah, it's a, hor- a slice of us. And if you can't wait another week for another episode, why not consider heading over to our Patreon page, which has 34 episodes in well, That's it. a lot of episodes, Ben. It's a lot of episodes, oh, right? Well, imagine if there were books. You'd you'd struggle to fit them on a little shelf. There you go. Why not? If so you do. why not? <laughs> and also, if you're thinking, oh, I wish I had a hat to wear. Mm. Why not go to our store? Because we have two types of hats you could pick from. Denim blue and denim faded black. A tote bag, stickers, badges. We got the, we got the ruddy lot and a mug. Not like that. It's different to this mug, but we've got a mug if you want a coffee in the morning. Uh, why not go over there? And any sport day is very much appreciated. But guys, it's that time again. And like we always ruddy well say, we say this kind of a lot now. Actually, keep doing what you're doing, uh, unless it's um, Kevin Kathy will Hancock's face with a beard on it. Yeah. Cheating. Why don't you find lookalikes which actually are lookalikes? Okay, guys, until next time. All the best. Bye. <laughs> You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Additional voiceover by Hermione Gulliford. Additional research and timelines written by Danielle St. Romain. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert of Boston Sound. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. Theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search at Could Murder a Pod. For additional and exclusive content, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Could Murder a Pod. 
And don't forget to tell all of your friends. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.